From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, December 10th. I'm Marco Werman. Egyptians worry President Mohamed Morsi is behaving just like the dictator he replaced. They point to the draft constitution as evidence. It looks like an author was forced to write a song. Then a composer was forced to make the, the music of it. And later, millions mourn singer Jenny Rivera, who was a hero to Latina women. The songs that she sang, many of them were about being a strong-willed woman. Those stories after the news. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. In Egypt, there are fears the country is slipping backwards toward autocracy and military rule. President Mohamed Morsi has given the army additional powers to arrest civilians. The move comes ahead of a planned national referendum on a controversial draft constitution set for Saturday. Opposition leaders are rejecting the referendum and they're calling for big demonstrations tomorrow. Many worry the protests could once again turn violent, especially if the army steps in. From Cairo, the world's Matthew Bell reports. Egyptian soccer fans sit in front of two TVs at a sidewalk cafe and cheer their team on to victory. For a country trapped in a political quagmire, it's something everyone can celebrate, says Ali Salem. The 76-year-old playwright and columnist says Egypt is in a tough spot. People are being asked by their Islamist president to vote on a constitution that's fundamentally flawed. Salem explains in artistic terms. looks like an author was forced to write a song. Then a composer was forced to make the the music of it. Then uh, the players are obliged to play it, led by a very stubborn and cruel maestro. For several days running, supporters of President Morsi have been holding demonstrations on the outskirts of Cairo. They say the bulk of Egypt's private media outlets are anti-Islamist and that the demonstrators who've come out against Morsi are part of a foreign-funded plot to revive the old regime. They are gathering, paying money for people, trying to take Mohamed Morsi off the the chair of of the presidency. Uh, We will support him and we will stand with him. Because he's only looking for the sake of the country. He's not looking for power, he's not looking for money, he's not looking for anything. He's only looking for the sake of the country. But Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood organization that supports him have lost the trust of many Egyptians. That includes a handful of government officials who've resigned in protest. Issam Alamir quit his post as head of Egyptian state TV late last week after Brotherhood supporters attacked demonstrators at the presidential palace. El Amir tells me that, yes, Morsi was democratically elected, but the president's actions since then speak volumes. 
For example, the way he used a presidential decree to push through a draft constitution and impose a referendum. These moves, El Amir says, show that Morsi has become a true dictator. The big problem with the draft constitution, says Heba Marayev of Human Rights Watch, is that it's not representative of society. The document was heavily influenced by Islamists, while input from secular and Christian Egyptians was absent. The political significance of Morsi having chosen to put this text to referendum, a text that was passed in 17 hours by a constituent assembly where there was no church representative, where all of the liberal representatives had walked out, that is a very dangerous political message ultimately, especially given the fact that Egypt has a problem of sectarian violence, and I think it's, it's led to the current political crisis that we're in right now. Marayev says the current draft constitution puts limits on human rights, women's rights, and the freedom of expression. Egypt's main liberal secular opposition group, the National Salvation Front, agrees. At a chaotic news conference last night, opposition leaders said they reject Saturday's referendum and they called for more mass demonstrations tomorrow. Spokesman Hussein Abdelghani told me Morsi and his followers have pushed Egypt to the brink of civil war. We respect our brothers in political Islam, but they are not respect the liberals, the Marxists, the Nasrites. They are not respect the will of the Egyptian people, especially the will of Egyptian youth, who I think, I think, displayed by every single means, they are going to sacrifice their lives for the freedom. What makes the current standoff so ominous is that the Muslim Brotherhood also says that this is a fight for survival. Supporters of Mohamed Morsi say the opposition is trying to destroy the Muslim Brotherhood. The people have decided, they chant, and God's Sharia law is their choice. Morsi is not alone. He's the president of the republic. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Cairo. Washington's response to the drama in Egypt has not been very loud. The State Department says Washington is urging a genuine dialogue and an end to violence. Can't really argue with that, but some say the U.S. could be doing a lot more. Michael Hanna is a fellow at the New York think tank, the Century Foundation. Uh, Michael, how would you characterize the U.S. response to the crisis in Cairo thus far? Yeah, I think your uh, description was definitely accurate. The U.S. response has been tepid and has wanted to create an air of, of equivalence, of saying we condemn the violence and we call on dialogue for all sides. I think the problem with that approach is that this latest bout of instability has a cause. It didn't just happen. And it finds its cause in what are unilateral autocratic actions by the president, Mohamed Morsi. And I think that's got to be one point of focus because these unilateral moves are what have set off this instability. So how does Washington address that, uh, that cause, that uh, autocratic move by uh, President Mohamed Morsi? What can they say? Well, it's difficult. Of course, we come at this with a lot of baggage. But I think what's important to realize is that we are implicated in events in Egypt because of our deep and ongoing relationship with the Egyptian government. And so silence or a tepid response is also interpreted in many ways, uh, and it is primarily seen as acquiescence. And I think that's problematic. Um, I think much of that derives from the old bargain that used to exist that prioritized the Egypt-Israel peace treaty 
uh, an Egyptian foreign policy and set aside domestic policy for uh, Egyptian rulers. And that's, that was the bargain that essentially ruled the day for many decades with President Mubarak. And I think some Egyptians worry that perhaps that old bargain is going to be reinstated. So what would you like to see the U.S. doing or saying to Egypt right now, Michael? Well, I think it's important always to remember that these crises are going to be primarily solved by Egyptians. Uh, But that's not to say that the United States and the international community are unimportant. And I think I would have preferred to see uh, somewhat more explicit language with respect to the initial steps that caused the crisis to begin with. And I think a realization that while aid conditionality is often, I think, way overrated in terms of how effective it is, there are some tools that can be used, such as the IMF loan that is pending right now. So, you know, I don't want, I wouldn't want to see the United States overly involved uh, to become a direct party to the conflict, but it's important to understand that silence is its own very distinct message, and I, and I think it's not a good one to send. Michael Hanna at the Century Foundation in New York, thank you. Thanks for having me. During Libya's revolution, tens of thousands of people disappeared. Many of them were imprisoned or killed by the Gaddafi regime. But after the war, information on the missing began to trickle in. Libya's transitional government says at this point, only about 2,100 cases remain unsolved. But for the families of those still missing, the search is painfully slow. Marine Olivezi reports from Tripoli. In the hallway of a government building, a gray-haired man flips through a neatly arranged binder. It holds 51 index cards, one for each phone call he's received from people who volunteered information on his son's whereabouts. Till now, he, he believes that his son's still alive. He knows that he's still alive because of these, all these 51 calls. 17-year-old Mohamed El-Majour Sheikh went missing in Tripoli on February 22, 2011. That day, he took to the street to support protesters in Benghazi who had just kick-started the Libyan uprising. Mohamed was with a group of high school friends when soldiers barged through the crowd. Everyone started running. Mohamed's friends escaped, but he fell and was captured by security forces. After the overthrow of Gaddafi, Mohamed's father visited prisons and distributed leaflets. His son's picture still appears regularly on television. Each time he gets new tips, raising both hope and fear. His voice breaks as he reads notes from a phone call from Benghazi. Several people there claim they've spotted his son wandering the streets. They say the young man has lost his memory. Mohammed's father quit his teaching job and he's been shuttling between Tripoli and Benghazi, pursuing every single lead himself. Technically, that's the job of the new ministry of the martyrs and missing people. The problem is that He's saying that uh, some people here in the ministry don't believe his story because they're saying, like, your son mostly dead. Uh, if he was alive, someone would uh, catch him in the, in the streets. That's why he thinks that he has to do the job himself. Still, Mohammed's father comes to the ministry every week to beg for updates and keep up the pressure. Issam Abdurzak Zreg is director of the missing department. He says he understands that relatives are frustrated with the slow pace of the investigations, but so are the government workers. It's a big challenge to us. We have many issues, and we are still struggling to, to have a success in this ministry. 
Drake says his department gets international help for DNA testing and staff training, but their groundwork suffers from Libya's institutional vacuum. Collecting information and connecting the dots is a daunting task in a country that still lacks a proper police force and justice system. So far, the ministry has focused on registering the missing and allocating a monthly pension to their families. 2,135 cases have been filed in the past year. Most of them are opposition activists and fighters who disappeared during the revolution. But the figure also includes Gaddafi loyalists who vanished when the regime collapsed. Most of the cases that we registered these days are from these families that uh, wasn't just the government. They were... Uh, scared to inform that we have a missing one was working uh, at the militias under the Gaddafi regime or things like that. Now they become more comfortable to come to us and ask for help. About 60 cases have been resolved in the past year. Zreg says most of those who were found alive and well have been in hiding in Egypt or Tunisia. Former rebel fighters, on the other hand, are most often found dead. On a recent afternoon, hundreds gathered in Misrata's city stadium around the caskets of eight fighters who went missing in March 2011. She always had the feeling that he was coming back. She was always waiting for him to knock on the door. Abdelaziz's mother hung on to hope for 20 months until a mass grave was uncovered in November. They found the body of her son along with seven others. Their portraits are on exhibit at the Revolution Museum in Misrata. Photos of revolution martyrs plaster the walls with one corner reserved for the missing. The museum opened before the revolution ended and many of those missing were later found in jails in Tripoli. But the curators didn't take down the photos. They just put stickers on the soft cases, indicating whether they turn up alive or dead. Most of the missing photos now sport stickers, including the picture of Abdelaziz. For The World, I'm Marine Olivezi in Misrata, Libya. Libyans gather to honor their missing. Marine sent a slideshow from Libya. That's at theworld.org. Still to come on the program, cooking in the Hanukkah kitchen when there's a lot to kibitz about. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, advancing access to health care through global philanthropy. Learn more in the Medtronic 2012 Philanthropy Report, online at MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. Silvio Berlusconi is gone, or is he? Italy's current prime minister, Mario Monti, announced this weekend he'll step down ahead of schedule. That's because his government lost support of Berlusconi's center-right party. That paves the way for a February election, and the ex-prime minister, Berlusconi, has already said he's running. So could this mean the return of Italy's most controversial lawmaker? Correspondent Megan Williams is in Rome and has been following the story. Explain the cause and the effect of this dramatic turn of events in Italian politics, Megan. Well, the cause of uh, the current prime minister, Mario Monti, stepping down was the withdrawal of support from Silvio Berlusconi's party. Now, many listeners may remember that Mario Monti came to power just over a year ago. That was when Silvio Berlusconi was forced to resign amid sexual scandal and corruption charges, but mainly because Italy was on the brink of economic chaos. And there was so much pressure from Europe and from Italians for him to step 
step aside. So Mario Monti set up an interim technical government, and his job really has been to bring the debt down. He has passed austerity measures, he's reformed pensions, and, you know, at first Italians liked him a lot, and of course, as taxes go up and and people feel the hit in their pocket, he's not as popular. That said, Berlusconi has been waiting in the wings for the right moment in which to withdraw his support because he would like to re-enter politics for his own reasons, which are many. (laughs) So has Monty been effective? I mean, as you say, he was supposed to steer Italy away from the Greece-Spain scenario. Is this Berlusconi news a sign that Monty is not encouraging for the markets? Well, it depends who you ask. You know, the markets are happy. The spreads have gone down. Europe is happy. But Italians aren't, again, because they've had to pay a lot more taxes, and they're also not sure what it all means. I mean, the problem right now is that Italy is slipping into a recession. So there's a sense that, okay, you're going to pay all these taxes this year, but next year, with unemployment on the rise, the problem could still be there. So there is a loss of confidence inside Italy of Mario Monti. But but are Italians ready to embrace the alternative of, of Berlusconi? I mean, he's to go on trial for having sex with a minor. He's gone through so many chapters of disgrace. How could he have any influence at this point? Okay, there's a, a couple of factors that contribute to Berlusconi still being a player. One is just the simple fact that there's no other strong candidate within the right wing. There's sort of a vacuum there. There's been a lot of infighting. And Berlusconi is still one of the most dynamic leaders, if you want to put it that way, on the right. Berlusconi, outside of Italy, of course, is considered a complete clown, if not dangerous sociopath in some ways. And, you know, the the rest of the world is completely perplexed by the fact that this character still keeps re-entering Italian politics. Now, he's seen as a clown and, you know, somebody who's criminal by a lot of Italians as well. But there's a lot of Italians who they look at Monty and they just see higher taxes. They look at the center left and they think a bunch of old communists who really haven't got with the times. So Berlusconi, given the options for many Italians, doesn't look so bad. You know, that's about 15 percent of Italians right now. And it's not enough to get him elected, but it is enough to make him become a player in whatever possible political landscape that presents itself when elections come probably towards the end of February now. Megan Williams in Rome. Thank you so much. Thanks, Marco. I don't often use the word superstar, but Jenny Rivera was a superstar. The Mexican-American singer and actress was killed yesterday in a plane crash. She had just given a concert in Monterrey, Mexico. Also on board her Learjet were four other members of her entourage. The two pilots were killed as well. To get a sense of how big Jenny Rivera was, it's estimated that she sold 15 million records. That's on par with Taylor Swift and Adele. Beto Arcos is a frequent contributor to the world. She was a huge, huge star, as you said. This is a woman who really began her career very humbly. Her father was a singer of corridos, and he started a record label, and pretty soon the family was already gaining attention, and they were nobodies and became huge in in literally a couple of years. Jenny Rivera wasn't really a singer. She was uh, working in real estate in the beginning, but then decided that uh, she had a voice and she found her voice. And the thing about her that is really interesting is that not only was she singing sappy songs, 
as many in this musical genre do, whether it's you call it grupera music or banda music. But she started singing songs in which she took a role as a strong woman. In mm. fact, she was kind of a hero uh, to a lot of uh, Mexican women because she stood her ground as a female. In fact, she herself was a victim of, uh, of domestic violence. And she started singing songs that had to do with you know, taking the, the power as a woman and, and being strong. So is that is that how she achieved 15 million sales in records? I mean, what was her fan base? Women who liked what she was saying. Exactly. And she follows, I mean, there's a, a couple of women like that in Mexican popular music. Uh, the one that I can think of right now is Paquita La del Barrio. These are women that sing about issues that, uh, of course, no women there to sing about. She was born in Long Beach, California, according to uh, the obituaries. Does that mean that she was kind of working as an American musician in a very kind of Latino-dominated musical culture? I mean, could she have actually lived in Mexico and, and kind of made this music? It's hard to say. I mean, all I can say is that I would think that because she came from the U.S., she had a lot more respect from fans. But the thing about Jenny Rivera is that really she was the queen of this kind of musical style of pop music in a sea of male-dominated singers, including her brother, uh, Lupillo Rivera. Now, there was an intriguing commentary uh, uh, written by uh, a man named Gustavo Arellano in Los Angeles's OC Weekly that the, the death of Jenny Rivera, uh, a woman who was as big a superstar uh, there in Mexico as Taylor Swift is here, that her death shows once again how the mainstream media in this country is pretty clueless when it comes to Mexican anything. And I'll confess, we do a lot of non-American music on this show, and I had never heard of Jenny Rivera. Would you agree with Arellano's assessment in, in the OC Weekly? Absolutely. And I have to say, our own, our very own Los Angeles Times here, I read the, the obituary and an appreciation that was in today's paper. They almost dismissed the music as kind of, you know, not really worth the attention of Americans because that's basically music that's listened to by Mexican immigrants, working class immigrants, as if Mexican immigrants don't count. That is sad. Beto Arcos, thank you very much for speaking with us about uh, Jenny Rivera. Thank you very much. Tenemos que hablar de mujer, Hay que dejar unas cosas en claro. Que no te guste, tienes que entender. Lo que es mío es mío y no voy a soltar. Voy a pelear y defender mi honor. Soy su señora y mucho me ha costado. No sé cómo entraste, no sé cuándo fue. No sé qué le diste. The music of late singer Jenny Rivera. She died yesterday at the age of 43. We've posted some of her recent live performances at theworld.org. This is PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up on The World, China goes after Tibetans who set themselves on fire. Also, atheists in India struggle for recognition and acceptance. In a country like India, where everyone has the right to choose their religion, everyone has the right to practice their own religion, I should have the right to reject every religion. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, 
demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's a tragic story and one that's been occurring a lot more this year. Chinese state media announced today that a 16-year-old Tibetan girl died after setting herself on fire. Since 2009, more than 90 Tibetans have set themselves ablaze to protest China's rule of the Tibetan Plateau. China has accused the exiled Dalai Lama of stirring up the unrest, and now China wants to prosecute people who attempt to self-immolate. The world's Mary Kay Magstad is in Beijing. So what is the Chinese government saying will happen to someone who attempts to self-immolate, Mary Kay? Well, assuming that they're not successful and they're still around to face criminal charges, the government is saying it could charge them with intentional homicide um, and that this would apply not only to someone who tries to self-immolate, but also to anyone who organizes, plots, incites, coerces, entices, abets, or assists others in self-immolating. All right. I want to get back to this uh, law, this proposal in a second, but tell me more about the 16-year-old Tibetan girl. How did she die? And has this uh, proposal from the Chinese government been in reaction to that? Well, I think the proposal is in reaction to all of the 94 self-immolations and particularly the fact that so many of them have come just in this past month since the leadership transition started. Um, the government sees this as being an affront to its authority, an affront to its power. Um, you know, it uh, places a very... Uh, a lot of emphasis on social harmony and social stability. And so rather than listening to people who are so desperate that they feel that their only recourse is to set themselves on fire, um, the government says, well, you know, I mean, we, we see this as a form of terrorism. They've said this at one point um, because you're disturbing social harmony um, and now they're seeing it as murder. And I think in, in many of these cases, um, what happens is that um, someone who feels that they want to make a statement for the Tibetan people and for the repression that they've been feeling, particularly since the 2008 protests, they go ahead and, and take the step of um, you know, f- following the example that they've seen before them, um, mostly done by monks, it must be said, uh, in, in Western Sichuan, but increasingly there are um, non-religious Tibetans or those who are not in religious orders who are doing this as well. And the 16-year-old Tibetan girl is the most recent of those. Last week, the U.S. State Department uh, called on China to let Tibetans express their grievances freely uh, and accused uh, uh, China of increasingly severe controls, including the use of force and arbitrary detentions of Tibetans. Why is there no greater push or pressure from the international community? That's a really good question, and it's something that a number of human rights groups who are concerned about the issues in Tibet are asking as well. Um, There have been lobbying efforts by human rights groups to try to get uh, European uh, diplomats and U.S. diplomats to work together um, to send a message to the Chinese government that this matters. It matters to them as a human rights issue, but it also matters in terms of social stability, um, and it will, you know, potentially come back and have a bigger impact on China in the future if they don't deal with this in a wise way now. Um, you know, so far, 
many governments try to balance、uh, things like how much they're going to raise human rights concerns with what their trade relationship is with China, and even with China's economy starting to slow down slightly now. Uh, trade with China still really matters to a lot of countries, and so they don't really want to jeopardize their relationship with China, their economic relationship with China, to make this point. Well, thanks very much for this update on、uh, a rather tragic story: the world's Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing. Much obliged. Thanks, Marco. India is called the world's largest secular democracy. The government says it embraces people of all religions, but one group there says they don't feel the love. India's atheists say the country's laws and policies ignore their existence. Ashley Cleek met with some young atheists around India. At a coffee shop in central Mumbai, seven men sit around a table. This is one of a dozen regional groups of atheists in India. Most of them started on Facebook and slowly moved outdoors. The monthly meetings here in Mumbai are small, but every time new people come. One guy named Vikram is new to the group. He says this is the first time he has ever been around even this many people who are atheists like him. When I came to this meet, I was in fact very skeptical of what is exactly going to happen, and it's really, really very pleasant for me to, you know, meet people around me who are fellow atheists or rationalists or free thinkers, and who won't call me arrogant because I don't believe in a god. <laughs> the men around the table nod their approval. They say it's lonely being an atheist in India. They're alienated by friends and family. Bikram says he's even been physically threatened. There's no official count of how many atheists there are in India, and urban atheists say that would-be non-believers in rural areas are likely too scared to admit their atheism openly. In fact, this is one of the complaints of the atheists: they want government recognition. Another new member, Amit, says that during the recent Indian census, he was forced to pick a religion. And in the census, you have this question: which religion do you belong to? There's no、um, box. Which which allows me, you know, to choose that I'm I don't belong to any religion or I'm an atheist, and I find that deeply deeply offensive. On any form, whether I go in for new employment, any municipal form that I fill out, there is no form where I can say atheist and not be questioned. What the hell have you written? Another man says he was forced to write a religion on his daughter's birth certificate. When he tried to write none, the official told him that was not allowed. Atheists say they are often scared to debate religion publicly because of two laws, commonly called the blasphemy laws. They're remnants of the British system and say a person can be fined or face jail time for maliciously attacking religion. And then there's the fact that India allows religion to dictate what would be civil functions in the West. So each religion has its own set of laws for issues like inheritance, marriage, and divorce. Muslims follow one set, Hindus another. Atheists must pick which one to follow. Atheist group member Vikram says it shouldn't be this way. In a country like India, where everyone has the right to choose their religion, everyone has the right to practice their own religion, I should have the right to reject every religion. And if I if if I want to say it out aloud, yes, I should be allowed to. If I want to doubt somebody's God, yes, I, yes, I should be allowed to. If I want to say that what you are thinking isn't correct, yes, I should be allowed to. That is what free speech is. In fact, India's first prime minister. Jawaharlal Nehru was a vocal non-believer. He might have checked none for religion, but regardless of what's legal, shunning religion in India is culturally taboo. Many atheists say they're scared to tell their parents and continue going to temple and church to appease their families. They call the process of telling family and friends that you're an atheist coming out, like coming out as gay. Dali, a 34-year-old IT executive in Bangalore, would know. 
She's gay and now describes herself as a secular humanist. Dolly was raised in a Christian family, but says her sexuality led her to question organized religion. So in the Bible, being a homosexual was uh, uh, like sin. So then I started questioning everything in the Bible. So it started with my sexuality and then started questioning about Christianity. Then it went to all the other religions. Dolly says her parents didn't accept either, her being gay or an atheist, and sent her to counseling and Christian retreats. Now, Dolly says, her family tacitly accepts her beliefs. But she still doesn't feel comfortable expressing her atheism widely. For now, though, the laws remain unchanged, and atheists, however many there may be, are a gathering presence online. For The World, I'm Ashley Cleek, in Mumbai, India. Some of my earliest childhood memories are of awkward exchanges between my parents and some of their friends and relatives about God and religion. The world's Ritu Chatterjee grew up in India, raised by an agnostic mother and an atheist father. My parents didn't talk to me or my brother about religion. I was certain that they thought and felt differently about the topic compared to pretty much everyone I knew. While we celebrated Hindu festivals, our home wasn't filled with idols of Hindu gods and goddesses, and Ma and Baba never prayed. When I was about 10 years old, I could take it no more. Enough, I thought. It's time they came clean. For more of Ritu's story, go to her blog post at our website, theworld.org. Today's GeoQuiz takes us to the eastern shores of the Baltic Sea. The country we're looking for today has neighbors big and small. Russia is the big one, looming on its eastern border. And the country we want you to name is nestled among the smaller ones, Estonia, Lithuania, and Belarus. This country has a strong tradition of folk songs, some dating back to more than a thousand years. That musical tradition helped inspire one woman to find her voice and ultimately her place on stage at the Metropolitan Opera in New York. Here's just a sample from a mezzo-soprano we'll meet when we reveal the answer later in the show. Hanukkah is underway, and Jews around the world have been making latkes for the holiday, potato pancakes fried in oil. Two expert latke makers are Regina Karolinski and Bella Katz. They're both in their 80s. These best friends share an apartment in Berlin, and they're the stars of a new documentary and a cookbook called Oma and Bella. Oma for grandmother. The filmmaker is Regina's granddaughter, Alexa Karolinski. Reporter Julia Simon met up with Karolinski in New York to learn more about the film and to make some cookies. In a small Brooklyn kitchen, German-born filmmaker Alexa Karolinski opens up a stick of butter and a package of cream cheese. The very unorganic Philadelphia by Kraft. And uh, no low fat, full fat in everything, and flour. Okay, perfect. <laughs> We're making the dough for Hagelzuckerkekse, Regina and Bella sugar cookies. The film doesn't just feature the women cooking desserts. There's also soups, meats, and sauces. But all this food isn't German. It's from Eastern Europe. Regina is originally from Poland, and Bella is from Lithuania. Along with many other Jews from Eastern Europe, they ended up in German camps for displaced persons after World War II. Most people 
left, and then a couple of thousand Jews stayed for various reasons. I don't think that it was a conscious decision to stay. I think the answer is that they just didn't leave. They all had babies in the displaced person camps, and they all married basically the first person they met after the war and started these new families. And I think living life became more important than leaving. But I, I think they definitely paid the price for staying, psychologically for sure. Karolinski says that while Regina and Bella are Holocaust survivors, and thus, in many ways, her movie is a Holocaust movie, she didn't want to just tell another story of what happened during the war. She wanted to focus on their friendship and their strong personalities. To me, what I really wanted to do was make a film in which you can get to know two people who went through this but who are very much alive today and to let the past, the dark past, kind of trickle in really randomly in the way that memory actually works. As we learn in the film, the past especially trickles in when they are in the kitchen. As Bella says in the film, you remember it so vividly when you are cooking. I wanted to talk to Regina and Bella myself, so we put the cookie tray in the oven and called up Germany on Skype. Hello, Alexene. Hi, Bella. Shalom, Alexa. With Karolinski as my translator, I asked Regina how she felt about talking about the dark past in the documentary. The whole time, you know, she said that they didn't want to talk about it for the longest time, and during filming they realized that it would be an important document for the future generations. And it was really hard in the beginning, but then they realized that even though it's hard, it might be important to talk about it so that it doesn't get forgotten. And then she asked me immediately after that how I'm doing. <laughs> when we get off the phone, Karolinski sighs. Well, they say they're happy now. I think they've made peace with living in Germany. And I also think that the success of the film in Germany and the fact that so many non-Jewish Germans have fallen in love with them and have gotten to know them and they get stopped on the streets by people for photos and stuff has really come to help them feel accepted for who they are. We take the golden brown cookies out of the oven. The sugar is sizzling. Mm. As Regina and Bella say of these cookies in the film, they look like beauty. For The World, I'm Julia Simon, Brooklyn. The cookies are fantastic. My editor made them yesterday. We have the recipe and pictures of Bella and Regina in their Berlin kitchen at theworld.org. Coming up next, remembering a man who played a duet with Albert Einstein. This is PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. If you're big on science, you may be a fan of Neil deGrasse Tyson or Bill Nye the Science Guy. They're both great at explaining complex scientific matters to the rest of us. But neither of them comes close to having the impact of Sir Patrick Moore, for more than 50 years, Moore hosted the TV program The Sky at Night on the BBC. 
Moore died yesterday at the age of 89, and the world's Clark Boyd has this appreciation. Patrick Alfred Caldwell Moore was born in 1923. By the age of six, he'd already found a calling. It was a rainy afternoon, and I had nothing to do. And I curled up in the armchair, and by my side was a bookshelf. And in that bookshelf was a small book called The Story of the Solar System. It was published, I think, in 1898. And it wasn't actually a boy's book, but I could read. And uh, I picked this thing up, and I read it. And I decided this was interesting and should be pushed along. Pushed along, indeed. At the age of 13, Moore published and presented his first paper to the British Astronomical Association. It was about craters on the moon's surface. At 16, he lied about his age, faked his medical tests, and passed up a place at Cambridge, all to join the Royal Air Force during World War II. His experiences, including a visit to Dachau, made him a lifelong opponent of war. His fiancée actually died during a World War II bombing raid. Moore never married. After the war, he taught and spent time building his own telescopes. Then, in 1957, the BBC decided to launch a TV astronomy program and asked Moore to host it. With its signature theme, The Sky at Night was, and continues to be, a huge hit. Moore brought incredible energy and intelligence to the show. Check out the way he describes an eclipse. There it is, the wing has appeared, the corona's vanished, and that is the end of this eclipse of the century. And by Jove, was it worth seeing? I used to beg to be allowed to stay up to watch the sky at night, and uh, my parents kindly indulged me, and I was captivated. That's astrophysicist Brian May. And I read one of his books, which is in the school library called The Earth, and uh, learned about trilobites and the formation of the Earth. And I was hooked on astronomy, really. That was it, which was to stay with me all my life. Well, part of May's life anyway. He is, of course, better known as the guitarist for the rock band Queen. Patrick Moore himself was no stranger to music. In fact, Moore, a piano player, once accompanied none other than that great violinist Albert Einstein at a pre-war astronomy conference in New York. Moore also composed for and performed on the xylophone. Moore also enjoyed making his own wine, and he was always surrounded by his cats. And then there was the trademark monocle he liked to wear, an eccentric's eccentric to be sure. But in all the years he presented The Sky at Night, Moore only missed one episode. And during the years of the Cold War space race, both the Americans and the Soviets used his maps of the moon. Here's how Apollo astronaut Buzz Aldrin describes Moore's influence. Astronomy has just grown through leaps and bounds, and it's, it's people like Patrick who've been able to put it into perspective, help ordinary people understand the enormity of the universe. I'll leave you with this quote from Patrick Moore. We are a very, very small speck in the universe, about as important as a single ant in the whole of the world. That from the man who always said he wanted to be remembered merely as an amateur astronomer who played cricket and the xylophone. For The World, this is Clark Boyd. Want to see Queen guitarist Brian May talking astronomy with the late Patrick Moore? Yeah, I know, me too. We've got a video at theworld.org. For our GeoQuiz today, we were looking for a country in the Baltic region of northern Europe. The answer is Latvia. It's where mezzo-soprano Elina Garantia grew up and where she developed her passion 
for theatre and music. We have really a very um, long traditions of, of music, so to say. And then, of course, um, you know, being a, a small country, um, being occupied a couple of times, you know, we have been influenced by many people. However, we managed to keep our traditions, our culture, our language, and uh, we are proud that it's only about two million people who are still speaking in Latvian, or at least, you know, considered to be Latvians. So, um, yeah, we are, we are little, but we are strong. <laughs> It's not just opera that keeps her going during the cold Latvian winters. She says she grew up singing Latvian folk songs. There is one song that I actually sing now to my little girl, which she likes very much. It's called um, which is like a, uh, about a little, it's not exactly a, a mosquito or a fly, but a little thing that lives behind the um, oven and does like... <coughs> Like a little cricket, it goes like So when this song somehow is very often um, sung in a, in a Christmas time. Garantia says her first brush with opera wasn't exactly encouraging. It was Wagner, after all. My first experience was at age of seven when I went with my girlfriend to see Tannhäuser, and I found it so boring that in the break we went home. <laughs> I was fascinated by theatre because my mother started to work in a theatre very much, and I wanted to be an actress, actually, but I failed in exams. So I had to go and, and earn my money uh, myself, you know, like cleaning houses and ironing and, and doing all that kind of Cinderella stories, as we say. So, um, yeah, somehow I thought, okay, stage. I had the musical background. I was playing piano for 14 years. I thought, well, what about singing? So I tried to sing and I fell in love. Now, Elena Garancha performs on world stages as the defiant Carmen in Bizet's Carmen and as Octavian in Strauss's The Night of the Rose. In 2008, she made her debut at the Metropolitan Opera in New York as Rosina in The Barbara Seville. And now she's back at the Met. Here she is in the role of Sesto, a young Roman aristocrat who's in love with Vitellia. His sister, Servilia, is in love with Anio, and they're conspiring to kill the emperor, whose name is Titus. Got it? Yeah, I know, opera plots can be kind of confusing. The opera is La Clemenza di Tito, The Clemency of Titus. Mozart wrote the music set to an Italian libretto just before he finished The Magic Flute. Tonight, Latvian mezzo-soprano Elina Garancha appears on stage in New York at the Met. Later this month, she returns to her hometown, Riga, to sing with the Latvian National Opera. Elina Garancha's performance in La Clemenza di Tito was shown live in nearly 2,000 movie theaters in 64 countries last week. The next encore performance is in theaters on December 19th. We have details at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening.
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the Annenberg Foundation. And by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.